Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I do mean wherever, I mean anywhere in the observable universe. You could, in theory, pick up a signal that would allow you to get a podcast. Now, why am I introducing this show with this really off-the-wall premise that you could get this show anywhere? It's because once in a while, I find it incredibly refreshing for my brain and my soul to step outside the normal topics we talk about on this show. It's mostly politics, but of course we call ourselves beyond politics because we're not limited to that. And by the way, we've had hundreds of new subscribers since the last time we had our guest today, John Gianforti of UNH on our show. So like I said last time, once in a while, I just need to step away from the day-to-day of politics, kind of our earthbound concerns, which let's face it, are usually a bummer. And think about something a little bit outside myself. There's nothing that I find more fascinating, more enthralling, more refreshing to my brain than to really think about the larger context in which we, our pale blue dot, and I'll return to that idea, our pale blue dot sits. And that's to think about space, stars, galaxies, the cosmos, and everything around us. John Gianforti is the perfect guy to do that with. He's the sky guy. He's an astronomer, the director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory. He's an astronomy instructor at UNH. He's a science writer. He's an adjunct faculty member at Granite State College. He's a lot of things, and he's just an absolutely stellar guest. Pun intended. John, welcome back. Boy, boy, there's, there's a, there's a, that, that's quite an introduction. That's, I, I, I tried to squeeze an awful lot in there. All right, look, the last time we did this show, I got so wound up, so excited about all the topics we were getting into the furthest star ever observed, the furthest galaxy ever observed, going back in time, gravitational lensing, all of this great stuff, by the way. If you're relatively new as a subscriber to the pod, go back in the feed to April and listen to that last show. It was it was awesome. It was just so interesting. But it was so interesting that we kind of ran out of time for something that we like to cover every time you join us on the show, which is, hey, what about the stuff that any of us can just go outside and look at? So let's pack that in first. John, what can we all look up in the sky this summer and and see and sort of enjoy? Well, there, there's always something. There's always something up in the sky, always. And even if it doesn't make the evening news, there's always something that we can go out and look at that doesn't require special equipment or expensive equipment or, or even a, a knowledge of the night sky. Although you can't help but to learn a little bit about how the stars and constellations are arranged once you go out and do some and do some stargazing on your own. But I think the thing that I have to mention, you know, during this show is in the morning sky. We have had for the past few months uh, a real vacuum of planets, especially bright planets in the evening sky. When we bring people out to the UNH observatory, when we have our public star parties, when we have private sessions, everybody wants to look at planets, but there haven't been any planets. They're still there, but they're all in the morning sky. So we've had to entertain and educate our visitors 
with other things that we call deep sky objects, which there are always plenty of those. But I wanted to call people's attention this, this month to the, the planetary parade in the morning sky before sunrise. We have all the planets, all the planets are visible lined up in a string from, if you're facing east where the sun rises, um, from the upper right to the lower left, close to the horizon, right? If you're facing east, we have all the planets there, all the way from, Nep from Saturn, Neptune, Jupiter, um, Mars, Venus, Uranus, and Mercury, all wow. in a row. Not that you can see them all with the unaided eye because Neptune and Uranus are, for most people, too dim to see with the unaided eye. But you can see them with binoculars from a dark location. But the naked eye planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, um, and Venus are all there lined up almost in a perfect straight line uh, facing east in the morning sky. And that is pretty rare. If you do that, if you get out before sunrise and it, you know, it gets light pretty early now in the summertime, it's kind of bad for astronomers because if we're observing on an all night observing run, things start to get bright um, about 345, you can notice a glimmer in the Eastern sky where the, where the sun rises. But I'm talking about, about four o'clock, five o'clock, um, while it's still dark enough to see stars and planets, we've got really Venus and Jupiter are gonna capture your attention first. And then Mars, which is brightening, and then Saturn are all visible in the Eastern sky um, late, late, late this, this month, like right now for the next few weeks, next couple of weeks. Wow, that's, that is pretty awesome. I remember a couple of years ago where Jupiter in the summer sky in the evening, Jupiter and Saturn were yes, yes. The, per the perception was that if you held a couple of for, for adults, if you held like two or three fingers together and at, at arm's length, they were that's how far apart they were. It was really quite stunning. But the prospect of getting well, at least five visible ones all in a row, if not all seven with a, with a set of binoculars is, is absolutely amazing. And one of the really fun things you can do is you can get an app like go Skywatch, and you can point it up. And if, if, if it has reasonably good, you know, if you have a reasonably good phone that, um, you know, has a, a good uh, gyroscopic system inside, it'll give you which ones you're looking at. It'll give you all kinds of really rich information about them. My kids absolutely love to play with that app, which I encourage. It's like the one bit of screen time that I'm like, yeah, go ahead, go nuts. Um, so it's, it's just, it's a great opportunity. The only downside is it sounds like you might have to get up at like four in the morning. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, the good part of this is um, over the course of the summer, uh, the, the planets will rise earlier and earlier and they'll be, by the time, by the time late August and September get here, those, those planets, especially Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, will be visible in the evening sky. So if, we, if, you, if you don't like getting up in the morning, you gotta wait a couple of more months, but by the time we go back to school in the, in, in the, for the fall term, those planets will be, will be, we won't have to wait or get up early. They'll be visible in the evening sky, which will be great. Yeah, that's a really great tip uh, for people like me who 
consume a really horrific amount of coffee to get up in the morning. Um, now, what if you really, truly don't want to do any of the work yourself and you want to rely on high power telescopes to do all of your observing for you? Well, we've got great news for you. We have checked in periodically on this show, uh, whenever John has visited, about the progress of the James Webb Telescope. Now, right before Christmas, we did a show together in which our Christmas wish was for a safe launch of the James Webb Telescope. Santa delivered. It was great. And James Webb successfully deployed. Since that time, when we last checked in, it was going through all its checks. It had reached that Lagrange point about a million miles away, where it's in a safe, stable spot. And last I checked, seven of the 17 key scientific instruments had deployed. But you were telling me right before we got on the air that we are almost at go time, that we're, we're just a couple of weeks away now from the first real observations becoming public. Is that right? Yeah, the the first image at first image is is actually of a star. I'll give you the name of the star here. Um, is is set to be released to the public on the twelfth of July. So only a couple of weeks away, and and the scientific commissioning of the in, instruments is is going very well. Um, it, it's 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 and the images the preliminary images, the science, the uh, engineering images, if you will, the qualifying calibration images are such a difference from the previous, from the previous um, good telescope, which is called Spitzer Space Telescope, which, which was decommissioned a time ago. Um, they're so much sharper, crisper, and clearer than those images. It, it's like, it's like I, I liken it a difference to the first images that were returned by the Hubble Space Telescope when it was launched in, in 1990. Uh, and then they found that the mirror was misshapen and had to get redone, had to have a set of corrective optics applied to it, which was done in December of 1993. The images between the James Webb and the Spitzer, it, its, its predecessor, are that drastically better with James Webb. Um, so it's, it's a huge, huge um, uh, benefit for astronomy, and it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to revolutionize observational astronomy, especially um, in the wavelength that James Webb is designed to observe best, which is the infrared, which is um, objects that give off uh, a lot of heat. All right. Instead of a lot of their light being given off in the kind of light that our eyes can see, we call that visible light. But so that's really good at looking through clouds and dust because clouds and dust block optical wavelengths, the kind of light that our eyes can see. But it doesn't block infrared radiation, infrared light, if you will. So the James Webb, um, despite I don't know if you heard this, but despite of the fact that last month, James, one of the James Webb uh, 18 mirrors was hit by a meteorite. By a micrometeorite. I was going right. to ask you about that. And I was like, I, I boy, I, I just, I saw the headline and my stomach just fell. You know that, you know that feeling. Oh, of yes. Like, oh, no. I felt the oh, same no. way when I saw the headlines. And then, and then, the, well, you tell, you tell us, this is like, oh, yeah, no big deal. We get hit by meteorites all the time. Well, 
I mean, that's it's it's what excuse me, what surprised astronomers was how quickly um, a relatively relatively large micrometeorite struck the mirrors. Mm. I mean, it, it's not even not even doing its science work yet. I mean, it's just about ready to do that. And 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 I I thought the same thing when I first saw the the headline. I, I said, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. We're not even done calibrating it yet. And we've got to, but they did plan, obviously it, it's in interplanetary space. Um, the solar system is full of small dust particles, right? And um, it's just a matter of time before the, the telescope is struck by these. And the, the, and you, you know, these were, were planned for, although you know, you like to go as long as you can without one of these. Um, the telescope is fine. It's still returning unprecedented images. So there are ways to compensate for some small micrometeorite impacts. I'll give you an example of how an impact like this can not affect the overall quality and, uh, and the scientific value of the images and data that the telescope collects. There is a telescope at the McDonald Observatory down in, in Texas, way out in Fort Davis, Texas. And in 1969, they, they commissioned a new telescope that was 107 inches in aperture. It means it was 107 inches across. And a few years after that instrument was commissioned, some crazy guy came in with a, with a gun and actually shot three holes in the primary mirror. I think it was three and the holes are still there. You can, you can, if you look and the telescope is pointed in a certain way, you can see those bullet holes in the mirror. And I, I mean, it, it's, they're still there today, but the instrument does unbelievable science um, because you don't see those imperfections now in the mirror. And they're much bigger in relation to the telescope diameter than this micrometeorite was in the James James Webb telescope. That's 6.5 meters across. So, but you can still do great science and with with a slightly damaged mirror. Wow. Well, I, I guess if we have a new um, Christmas in July type wish to commend to everybody, it's no more micrometeorites, please. Like, let's let's just. Yeah, if you're if you're my age, you may have grown up playing the game Asteroids. It's a lot of fun on a, on like an Atari, but it's not great when you're talking about a ten billion dollar space telescope. With that thought, and 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 speaking of incredible observations that we're getting in space, a different telescope captured an absolutely stunning image. At this point, as we record this, uh, this story is what uh, almost a month and a half old, but. Um, you know, it's it's really worth touching on because it, it's so stunning. The Event Horizon Telescope collaboration back in 2019 gave us our first image of a black hole. And now they've actually brought us a new image that looks stunningly similar to the first one. But this one is of our own black hole, the, the black hole that's at the center of the Milky Way galaxy when you saw this story emerge what stood out to you well we we knew i mean if you if you're working in astronomy you know that event horizon telescope um staff has been working on imaging the black hole at the center of our galaxy and in fact 
a few years ago in, in April, I think 2018, when that first black hole was, was that image was revealed, um, people, I had a lot of students ask, well, yeah, that, that was a, a massive black hole, but it was in a galaxy 55 million light years away. Why don't they focus on something closer? Can't we get a better look? And that was a really good question. But the, the black hole inside the galaxy M87 in the, in the Virgo cluster of galaxies, yes, it is some 55 million light years away, but that was, if you can believe this, that was the easier, the easiest supermassive black hole to get an image of. Not that they were easy by any stretch of the imagination. And why is that? Because there was nothing in the way or, or because it's so luminous, the, the gas around it? Or, or why was because, it so easy to see? Because it's so massive. It's much more massive. It's more than a thousand times more massive than the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Now, one of the things we've learned over the past 20 or 30 years is that most galaxies, not all, but of a, a very large percentage of galaxies have supermassive black holes at their center, right? That was, we, we didn't know that more than 30 or 35 years ago. We do know that now. And we do know that the Milky Way has a supermassive black hole at, at its center, and it's called a Sagittarius A star, or Sag A star is how we say it. Um, and it, at the center of our galaxy, and I remember in grad school, one of our problems on an exam was to calculate the mass of the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, and it weighs in about 4 million times the mass of the sun. Wow. Now, when we talk about the strength or the hugeness of a black hole, we always refer to its mass because there's really not a lot of things that you can say about a black hole that talk about its visibility because no light can escape from a black hole. So you talk about its capability when you talk about its mass. And the more mass an object has, the stronger is its gravity. So the M87 black hole is 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun. Sag A star um, at the center of our galaxy is only 4 million times. Now that's still massive, but it's much smaller and much more difficult to image. I thought I read one of the, uh, one of the articles online um, saying that if the, um, if the uh, Sag A star black hole was the size of a donut, the M87 supermassive black hole would be the size of a stadium. Wow. So, wow. so you, you pick the easiest yeah. things to pick to image first. And then when you get confident, then you can start to, okay, let's, what can we do to improve our techniques? You know, the Event Horizon Telescope has added a couple of telescopes. So it's getting more capable all the time. So the, the new black hole at the center of the galaxy, it's kind of it's kind of like, yeah, this is our supermassive black hole. It's part of our galaxy. So, you know, we want to get to know it. And it looks very similar. Well, and, you know, I want to ask you about that because there are some scientific implications of the fact that there are so many similarities be between these, these observations. It reminds me 
of something that the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov once wrote, which is that two is the most ridiculous number in the universe. What he means is there are things that don't exist, zero. There are things that are totally unique, like meaning the number one. But once you get to two of something, that suggests that there can't be only two. It suggests that there's a pattern at work here. And so in finding similarities, it suggests that there are commonalities that we could assume are true of black holes everywhere. Is that, is that sort of the importance of the similarities that we're seeing in these two sets of observations? Yeah, it, it tells us that, <clears throat> that the black holes, although they differ in size and mass, that they have common characteristics which means the first image of M87's black hole, supermassive black hole, was on the right track, right? Here's one that's, astronomically speaking, in our backyard, some 27,000 light years away. That's the distance to the center of our galaxy versus 55 million light years away, a, a considerable portion of the of, of, of across the universe. That's pretty far away, but yet they look very much the same. And you're right about if we find one, that's big news. But if we find more than one, well, maybe that's not a fluke. Maybe they're much more common than we thought. And I wanna I wanna clarify that, you know, when large massive stars end their lives, their, their end point is for the very most massive stars is a black hole. But that end of a star is very different from the kind of black hole that resides at the center of galaxies. So I always try to be sure that I'm clarifying what kind of black hole I'm talking about. A, a black hole that forms at the end of a massive star's existence <clears throat> is called a stellar mass black hole, right? So the black holes that we're finding that we know exist at the center of galaxies, they're not those kind of black holes. They're what we call supermassive black holes where they're you know, a thousand, a million, a billion or more times more massive than the sun. So we always kind of use the sun as a mass unit, right? Because the numbers of, of, of grams or kilograms would be so big, we, nobody could keep track of them all, right? So we use the sun's mass as kind of a yardstick to, deter, to, to weigh basically um, black holes. And the fact that, we're, that we have images of two of them now at great at opposite ends of the mass spectrum gives us a lot of confidence to say <clears throat> that black holes, it looks like black holes were essential in the formation history of galaxies. The, no one was, was around when the Milky Way formed. No one was around. These galaxies are, are 10, 11, 12 billion, <clears throat> billion years old. Nobody was around. So our, our knowledge, our understanding, our theories that describe how galaxies form is, has a lot of holes in it, a lot of missing things, right? Because they're far away, they formed a long time ago. So best we can do is, is take a lot of pictures of a lot of different kinds of galaxies, paint a picture of how they're distributed in the universe, what kind, of galaxies, there's three basic time, types of galaxies, 
and formation, how they actually formed, you know, how these large families, these cities of stars formed was, was always lacking some detail. Well, if you introduce a central supermassive black hole, it helps better explain how galaxy formation maybe started and maybe proceeded with the help of a central large massive gravitational body that helped draw gas and dust together in which these large stellar families later formed into like the Milky Way, like M87 and thousands of other galaxies that we can see in the sky. If any of this is piquing the interest and the curiosity of our listeners, I would just commend to them. First of all, there's a great article. There are many great articles about this particular discovery of the, the imaging of the uh, black hole at the center of our galaxy. I really enjoyed the one on, this is going to sound very nerdy of me, on the Harvard Gazette. Uh, you can Google that. One of the features of that one is they show side-by-side -side simulations of what over the course of time, what the, the swirling gas around the black hole looks like. It's, it's really haunting and ghostly and, and absolutely beautiful to look at. So I commend that to people. And I would also just note for all of those comparisons that John was just drawing about the relative size of these black holes compared to the sun, just bear in mind as, as you hear those numbers that our sun could fit 1.3 million planet Earths inside it. So that's the kind of relative size and mass we're talking about with these black holes. It's, it's just, it's a mind boggling set of ideas. And I hope that people, if, if you're interested, read up on it. Absolutely fascinating. And that was a, that was a great rundown from John just now. But, you know, I, I was kind of interested in, in what you were saying about some of the limitations we have in studying these extremely distant and mind-bogglingly um, huge objects. In terms of our exploration of space, the other option open to us, of course, is to go fly somewhere and take a look. And the fact of the matter is, we've been doing that with, with drones and robots and unmanned, I'm going to use unmanned as, as the expression here, I mean, not crewed by human beings, um, unmanned uh, probes, but we have not ourselves been flying anywhere to go take a look at stuff for a long time, in about 50 years now. And that's something that NASA is looking to correct in the next decade or so. They have a program underway called the Artemis program. And the idea is that over the next 10 years, we are going to return human beings to the surface of the moon. There's been some recent uh, updates, some, some testing of some of the equipment that's intended for this program. What, John, did you make of the, the, the kind of the updating that we've seen around the Artemis program, the trajectory of the program, does, does this seem like a, a worthwhile and, and well-designed scientific enterprise? Does it, does it make sense to you? Well, see, that's a good question. Um, hardcore um, astronomers might take, well, obviously, like anybody else, there's two different approaches, right? We have learned an amazing amount from our, our unmanned scientific probes that have, that have visited every planet, including some dwarf planets in our solar system, 
and we've learned so much from them. Humans are fragile, squishy, clumsy, um, forgetful. Um, we make stupid mistakes sometimes. And spacecraft on their own, given barring some catastrophe that, that happens to them, um, are much more reliable. Uh, they don't need a life support system. So you can devote a lot more of the weight and cost of a mission to doing science. And that has served us very well. Look how much we know about the universe that we've gained through robotic spacecraft. But manned spaceflight, woman's spaceflight in, 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 in the last 50 years um, has brought so much excitement, so much inspiration. And now we're in the realm of, of economic um, pursuits that could make space um, a much more common everyday word when we're talking about resources and, and even exploration. So visiting the moon again after our last visit there, which was Apollo 17 in, in 1972, um, is, is a resumption of our need to explore ourselves. Humans are explorers, right? We've, we've always been that way. Um, we've, we've done that with, with, with feet. We've done that with ships. We've now done that with spacecraft. Um, we've kind of been out of the business, like you mentioned, right? We haven't been to the moon since, you know, 72. Um, we're, we can learn a lot more about the moon and other small rocky worlds by studying more about our moon. And sure, we could learn more about unmanned robotic probes, and we are. But sending people there has a, a way of yanking you into the story. And how many engineers, scientists, um, movie makers were influenced by the Apollo program? It, it made us um, feel confident that we can do stuff, exciting things that represent and show the best that humans can do. Hopefully we do this in an international effort, right? And people don't try to claim <clears throat> the moon or asteroids for them, right? Themselves or for their country. Hopefully we march forward with exploring the moon creating outposts there <clears throat> that may serve as, um, as waypoints for exploring deeper into the solar system. Like you mentioned, Mars, right? Maybe we could use, maybe we could make a gas station on Mars that we would fabricate using Martian materials, right? L like we do on earth. If there is water on the moon, like we know there is now deep inside craters at the South Pole where the sun rays never get to, there is ice there, perfectly pure water. What's water made out of? Hydrogen and oxygen. Well, we can use the oxygen to survive. We can make rocket fuel out of water by a, a fairly simple manufacturing process that eventually could be automated. 
you could make rocket fuel without having to launch that on a spacecraft from Earth, which costs a lot of money um, because rocket fuel is heavy. But if you could manufacture it um, near Earth, that might make it economically more feasible to explore deeper into the solar system, like places like Mars. Well, and as you mentioned, that is something that's on the table. And one of the rationales for the Artemis program is indeed that NASA is planning longer range. They're they're saying this would be more toward the end of the 2030s or early 2040s, a manned, a a human crafted uh, trip to Mars. And it actually bears a lot of resemblance to the novel The Martian that was yeah. later turned into a really excellent movie with Matt Damon in it, quite enjoyed. Um, you know, a lot of resemblance to uh, what Andy Weir portrayed in that book. The idea would be that we would send a craft, it would be crewed by four human uh, uh, astronauts, and uh, the two of them would go down to the surface of Mars for 30 days. So one of the rationales for the Artemis program is that we need to work out a whole lot of kinks in order to be able to do Mars and going to the moon. As you said, it's like a forcing function. The the ability to send humans somewhere safely and bring them home, that's that's something it, it tends to focus you on all of the suite of technologies that you need in order to be able to accomplish longer missions. Do you share the same outlook? about the scientific value of sending humans to Mars as you do for the moon? Does, does the same rationale hold that, yes, this should be the objective that within the next 20 years, we have humans on the surface of Mars? Yeah, I, I do even more so because <clears throat> the, the rovers and the orbiting space platforms that are at Mars, and we've had a presence at Mars since the early 2000s. We, I, 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 I didn't plan on giving you a number, but there's probably five, six active spacecraft at Mars right now. Mm. Right? We have two rovers. We have a, a Chinese rover, so that's another. Um, and we have several orbiting spacecraft uh, telling us about the weather. Um, there's a, a radio network at work on Mars where a spacecraft on the surface can communicate effectively from Earth through orbiting spacecraft. And plus, we're learning about the long-term weather on Mars, right? Where are the best parking spots? Where are the best locations where um, habitats could be built on Mars that could protect um, astronauts from ultraviolet radiation from the sun? Mars has no ozone layer, no atmosphere. So we got to think about that keep people safe while they're on the planet. So, but there's nothing that can replace as good as the rovers are at exploring. And some of them, I think even the uh, Perseverance rover now can can drive autonomously for for short periods. Um, No one's gonna be as, no mechanism is gonna be as good as a person walking through a dried river valley and all of a sudden, some weird looking rock catches their eye and they pick it up and they say, whoa, that's a fossil. Look, I can see shell structure. A rover simply isn't gonna cover as much ground 
with a native curiosity, with the kind of senses that we have, I, my opinion, that can make that quick judgment that, ooh, this requires, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this rock and I'm going to bring it back to the hab and I'm going to look at it more closely or I'm going to bring it home with me, right? So I think that the scientific exploration of Mars um, would benefit from a human presence there as long as we don't muck up the planet. Which we have yes. a habit of doing, right? Right. right? Let's not talk about that one. That's that's not one of our. Uh, that's one not one of our strongest suits. But, is, uh, but, not but, mucking things up. Oh, please go. Ahead. You said something really important when you were talking about the 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 second black hole. Having two of something means a whole lot more than having one of something. So right now, with our biggest baddest telescopes, I think I've said this before to you no matter how far out we look, only one place has life. I won't even go so far as to call it intelligent, but we, so, no far, we know so far of one place that has life. Well, and look, you know, I was being a little tongue in cheek about our spotty track record about not mucking things up, but look, Elon Musk, who, you know, is, is driving the SpaceX effort, he says outright that he that the reason he wants to send humans to Mars is so that we have a backup plan because we have this terrible track record of kind of messing up our environment. And it would be awfully nice to have not one, but two. The other thing I did want to pick up on, though, that you were saying a moment ago is I made an impassioned case in our last show about the value of the space program because of the technological forcing function it creates. The, the science we do in the course of going to space and that we did in the course of going to the moon has echoed throughout recent decades and created the modern world around us. I've done several episodes of the show Great Ideas on this topic much more detail there. I commend those to our listeners. If you don't agree with me, or if you have some questions, check those out. I, I, I feel very strongly about this. And a great example was the fact that we were able to send the missions to the moon on incredibly primitive computer technology <laughs> yeah. that did not crash once. Think about <laughs> how often your computer crashes. None of these computers, these incredibly primitive computers with less computing power than exists in, in your watch, yes. in your wristwatch, yes. they never crashed. And yep. that came to mind when I saw a news item just this morning that scientists are in the course of shutting down systems on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 to try to extend the life of those space probes that are 50 years old, still flying, still sending back data, and are running on eight-track machines. I am not making this up. They are running continuously, flawlessly on a computing power that it's enough power. It's enough electrical power, basically, to, to power an old incandescent light bulb. <laughs> yeah, that's running. right. They have entered interstellar space in 2012 and 2018, respectively. They are beyond the solar system. They're in interstellar space. They're still doing science. At the top of the show, I made reference to what's happening beyond our pale blue dot. I made, That was an intentional reference because the most famous image ever created by the Voyager spacecraft was the so-called pale blue dot, a look back 
at Earth from billions of miles away that gave us a renewed sense of our tiny, tiny place in the universe. I, I don't have anything really scientifically to add to this, but I, I just, you know, I, I wanted to turn to you for your reflections on the meaning, the continuing meaning of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Well, I mean, if there, that's a 40-year-old space program. I mean, think about 1977 when they were launched. Think about how things have changed. But yet the same radio isotope thermoelectric generator that, that is powering those spacecraft, much degraded over time, still functioning enough to send signals back to Earth. That, that's amazing. Both of those spacecraft have technically left the solar system and exploring interstellar space. In fact, those missions are termed the Voyager interstellar mission because they've left, they left Pluto far behind and they're exploring. So the definition, in one definition of where the solar system ends, it's where the influence of interstellar solar wind supersedes the effects of the sun's solar wind. So the so particles right now, that, are, that are being emanated out, like pushed out from the sun, come up against the, the particles being pushed out by the other stars and, and, and in, in kind of a tug of war, it's a push of war, interstellar space winds. Exactly. So they're feeling the interstellar solar wind, if you will, mm. more strongly than they're feeling the solar wind from the sun. And that is tremendous. And the fact that, you know, that, that those are, you know, human spacecraft artifacts will be out there forever. And it's a testament to what we can do if we put our minds to it. And we should be proud of that. We should, you know, with all the, with all the problems there are with, with space travel, with making things in space that work reliably for a long time, we're, we're, we're pretty good at it. And we haven't been doing it that long. But we should take pride in that. And we should, next time somebody, you know, says something nasty about NASA, well, you can always say, well, what about those Voyager probes? You exactly. Know? You know, one of my prized possessions, I have a National Geographic magazine from July 1969 when we landed on the moon. By the way, a magazine for our younger listeners is something that's printed on paper. It's like a website. And there is an advertisement in it for a stereo system from Panasonic. Their tagline was and still is just slightly ahead of our time, which, of course, is ironic because the stereo is from 1969. But it is amazing seeing the technology, the vintage technology at the time in the ad in this yeah. National yeah. Geographic and thinking point. the technology from that time frame is what's in the Voyager spacecraft. That's when it was being developed. That's when it was being deployed. And it's still out there and it's still active. And it's something that is going to outlive all of us. There are gold records literally gold records yep. on the spacecraft, which encode information about humanity that are going to persist for millions of years, maybe will be viewed by other beings someday. And it's just, that's actually what this entire enterprise is about, not just the exploration, but doing this show to think about things like that and not the day-to-day -day of our politics. And for giving us that view, that broader view. John G. and Forty, thank you again so much. My pleasure, Matt. My pleasure completely. <laughs> <laughs>